Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. So stand if you're able and willing. I'm going to read just a couple verses from the end of Hebrews chapter 4, <clears throat> the beginning of chapter 5, starting at verse 14. This refers to Jesus as the great high priest. I love the Bible, you know. Um, High priest means you're the greatest priest. You're the high priest. There's only one high priest, right? If you're the high priest, you're the highest priest. So when the Bible calls Jesus the what? The great high priest. Great's really uh, um, redundant, isn't it? <laughs> um, but uh, it's always the author searching for words to describe the greatness of our Savior. He's not just the high priest. He's, he's the great high priest. And since then, we have a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's what a priest does. A priest is a mediator between God. He represents us, and we need it. He's our representative before God. He speaks to God on our behalf. What does it say in verse 2 of chapter 5 of our high priest? And he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. This is the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inspired word. Every word of it is true. It comes from the heart of God to his children. Amen. You may be seated, please. So one of the most sacred honors afforded to me as a pastor is something that I've experienced through the years that uh, never ceases really to stun me. But people will come into the office, come into my office, and they will sit down and they've made an appointment and they've told me they need to speak to me about something and they are afraid. And uh, very often they are so filled with shame that they won't even uh, look at me. They'll be unable to make eye contact. They'll sit, their eyes will be cast down. Uh, You can almost see them think about three or four times that they really ought to get up, that they were crazy to have made this appointment. This is foolish. And what they're about to do is, uh, is reckless. And uh, what is preceded, what they have proceeded to do is to share with me um, something that they've done that was evil. Or, in many cases, something uh, evil that was done to them. In either case, they're filled with shame. And, and then they often say to me, when they're, 
when, 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 when they've shared this deep inner secret, I've never told anyone this before. And they may well be talking about events that happened 10, 20 years earlier. I've never told anyone this before. And what's amazing to me then is they get up and they often, of course, they've had tears and sometimes I've had tears and, and then they get up and they smile, the biggest smile you've ever seen. And it's as though the weight of the world has been lifted off their shoulders. It, 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 you realize they're not really visiting with me in my office. They've, they've come to be honest with God. And they've felt the acceptance of God as their deep secret was revealed. And it changed them. I've seen it. I've seen it with my own eyes again and again. It is an amazing thing that happens. A powerful thing can happen in the lives of people when they experience security. When they feel safe enough to, to unveil um, the truth. The truth about their life, their story, the truth about themselves is an incredible thing to observe. You know, um, something life-changing happens when people begin to realize they're safe. Um, many people listen to the preaching from Seven Rivers Church. In this community around the country and in the world, it stuns me and Sometimes I ask when, when somebody writes me from somewhere, and I've never met them, never heard them, and they write me uh, and tell me they're listening. I'm, I'm always curious why, why? why? There's, there's a, uh, so many other sermons out there, why? And, and sometimes they'll answer because it's free. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I get that. Um, but you know, if I, if I press on, um, they'll, this is what I hear more than anything else, and I've heard it for years. The number one distinctive, they'll say, is that at Seven Rivers, the pastors confess their sins. The pastors tell us what's wrong with them. They don't preach down at us. They don't scold us. But they tell us, um, they, they present themselves as though they need the gospel more than anyone else. You know, that... Um, that's pretty amazing because if you think about it, there's tremendous pressure when you're a pastor to appear like you're really spiritual. There's tremendous, I mean, it seems like it's the job, you know, and that you're, you're putting at risk your job if you tell the truth about yourself. So what, what would enable pastors to do that? For, for one, we have to say, given, you know, I work with the pastors here, they do have a lot of material to work with, you know. <laughs> for one. Um, two, two, I'd have to say that um, there's, um, it, it, is in, it is tremendously exhausting to pretend. It is tremendously exhausting to have to appear to be something that you're not. Uh, and in time, that, uh, that exhaustion and that facade will almost destroy you. Um, so, so actually telling the truth about yourself is really much easier but I would say that it's the gospel. There's, there is something about the gospel that breeds a safety. I can remember when I first started telling the truth about, and this happens by the way, you know, Brandon preached last week. If you heard Brandon preach, he talked about wanting a reputation 
Um, he, he wanted to cultivate the reputation that he could fix anything. Remember if you ever heard him? Uh, that that reputation was important, that people view him that way. See, so he's, he's confessing that. The week before that, Michael Puckett told us about um, the way he had abused and, and uh, mistreated his little brother, um, yeah, even hated his, uh, his little brother. Sometimes when these guys on our staff start doing this, I feel like saying, no, 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 don't go there. That's too, that's too far, that's too much. They can't handle that. I remember when I first started to tell the truth about myself as a pastor, people would frequently come to me afterwards and say, pastor, that was, you know, that was very humble and everything, but you're not that bad, are you? Not really. And you know what I had to say, honestly? It's way worse. Do you think I'm really telling you the really bad stuff? Um, something amazing happens um, when, um, uh, when, when, when you're set free, when you're secure enough um, to tell the truth. So where does that security come from? It comes from knowing that Jesus' heart is for you and that it doesn't matter what others think about you. And it doesn't matter what you think about yourself. And which of those do you think is a bigger problem? It's what you think about yourself. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what others think of you. It doesn't matter what you think about yourself. You know, the one thing that matters is what does Jesus think of you? And when you discover that his heart is for you, it has power. It has power to change you in the deepest ways. So let's go there. Let's talk about it together. You have a sermon outline. You're going straight to hell if you don't fill it out. So um, how do we get this security? What's the basis of the security? The first, of, the first thing we see in this passage is the heart of Jesus to sympathize. But there's a solidarity with Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are. We have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us. He is on our side. He is present. He is helping. Now, sometimes we think God is my helper. You know, I, I experience that when he comes through for me. You know, I can't pay a bill and the IRS sends me a check. They call it a stimulus check. It shows up in my bank account. When has that ever happened? The government's sending me money. God, you did this. You're awesome, right? We say, you know, we're just filled with praise for um, God when, um, when we're driving down the road and suddenly we see a car veering into our lane and, and in just a moment it almost feels like our life. And, and then they it, you know, at the last minute, get out of the way, or we avoid it, we take a deep breath, we say, God, you came through. You're awesome. But, but the amazing thing here is that it, it's not God at work when our life is working, but it's God at work in our weakness, when life isn't working. Jesus knows how hard it is to live in this broken world. In our pain, he feels pain. In our suffering, He's a co-sufferer with us. There is a depth of felt solidarity. In Jesus, there is an unrestrained witness. We just finished Christmas. Oh, come, oh, come. What do we sing? Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. 
The God who comes down into the world and, uh, and, 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 and suffers with us. He's for us. Um, you know, and a doctor. Sometimes we experience a doctor, we're ill. And a doctor can come in and they can be empathetic and caring and they're, they're physically present with us. They're, they're for us. They could give us medicine, perhaps, right? That actually alleviates our um, suffering. We could say that they're with us, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about something deeper, more um, organic, that Jesus is with us in our suffering, not just as a great physician, but he suffers with us. You know, Adam Jones, one of our pastors, has a lovely daughter who has cerebral palsy. And Adam told me one year, a number of years ago, that they found a, a physician in St. Louis who was remarkable in her ability to, to bring aid and help to their daughter. And you know what was particularly remarkable about that physician is that she has cerebral palsy, the physician. So that when they bring their daughter to the physician, this physician what? Knows. They, haven't, they don't know just because they went to Mayo Clinic, right, that they got trained. They don't just know because they've read the textbooks. No, they know, right? She knows this physician. She has CP herself. This is Jesus. He knows. He's been here, right? He, um, he's born the illness. He came in flesh. He walked the dusty streets. He knows hunger and rejection, hatred, abandonment, shame, humiliation, slander, exhaustion, loneliness. He knows. The solidarity. He's with us. He's been here. He knows how hard it is. So the U.S. Capitol was in our news this week. In the Capitol, there's a place called Statuary Hall. Many of you have been there, right? There's, um, all 50 states are allowed to people to be represented as, uh, as people from their states who have made remarkable contributions. That means there's only 100 statues there. Some of you may be struggling with that math. Um, and one of the most remarkable is the state of Hawaii, one of their statues. Um, the statue there is to Father Damien. It's remarkable. It's the, uh, there's only two statues where the uh, honoree wears eyeglasses. That's one of them. Um, and uh, this um, Father Damien's not Hawaiian. He's not even American. He was from Belgium. He's a, a, a missionary. And he went to Hawaii um, and uh, in 1873, he went to the island of Molokai where um, um, lepers were shipped to be quarantined. In other words, they were more or less just put there to rot and die. There were no schools, there was no life, there was no culture, there was no community, there was, there was nothing for them. Father Damien started six churches among the lepers. Father Damien started farms so they could grow fresh and healthy um, food. He organized the people into work forces. He educated um, them. He created community and life. And after laboring there for 10 years, Father Damien got leprosy. And he died. And you can see it in his statue. You notice his, his right hand is, is in a sling, withered. His face is pockmarked and eaten up 
with lepers. I am willing to bet that of the hundred statues, he's the only leper. You see, Father Damien became Jesus, right? He didn't stand there and say, Jesus can help you in your leprosy. He knew. He knew their pain. He knew what it was like. So does your Savior. When the brokenness of this world collapses on you, and it will, on everyone, we all get our turn. When the brokenness of this world collapses on you, there is a friend who knows what we feel, who sits with us and cries with us and embraces us. We are never alone. You know, when I, I was reading over what I'd already written and I, I read where I wrote, Jesus cry, you know, cries with us, and ah, that's a little namby-pamby. And I thought, no, no, that's what he did, right? He went to the tomb of Lazarus, his friend, who died, and what did he do there? He wept with them. He wept with Mary and Martha, his friends. He was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and he still wept with them. He knows. He knows. All right. So I, I watched this um, Apple TV program called Ted Lasso. And I'm about to use an illustration from it, and I'm not encouraging you to watch it because it has some really wild, less than savory stuff. And it's so, don't let it be said, I'm not recommending it. I think, you know, Brandon recommended it to me or something. Um, <laughs> But it's a, it's a story of a, uh, it's a comedy, and it's a story of an American um, football coach who actually gets hired to be um, the coach of an English Premier League uh, football team. But, you know, they, they do something different over there when they say football, right? They're talking about soccer. And, um, and so he's utterly unqualified. And, uh, and he goes over there and he pours himself into it, and they, they, they make some uh, pretty remarkable progress. But little does he know that the owner of the team, who is a woman who's uh, just a battle axe, um, she um, has been undermining him at every step of the way. The woman who hired him, um, because she was divorced, she received the team ownership in, in a divorce, and uh, she hates her ex-husband so bad that it's her aim to really uh, ruin something that he cares about that belonged um, to him. So unbeknownst to him, the very person who hired him has been undermining him the whole time. And you get to the end of the show, and, um, and, and, and it's a comedy, but there's just a moment where, where she has to go in and say to him, admit what she's done. And, and she says, I am so sorry. And the show just stops, and it's, it's filled with such reality. When on TV does somebody say, I'm sorry? I am deeply Sorry, I've seen my wickedness. And, and, and Ted Lasso is the kindest character. Midwestern, Kansas City, wholesome. You can tell he is just smacked in the face by her treachery. I mean, he is just rattled by it. But he looks at this woman and he says to her, I didn't tell you that Ted Lasso only takes his job because his wife has left him. That's why he goes to England. That's why he gets away. And, uh, and when she admits her sin, he looks in her face and he says, I forgive you. And then he says this, because I know what divorce can do to a person. 
It was a moment. What's he saying? I've been ravaged by divorce. I know. You did something wrong. But I know. I know what divorce can do. See what I mean? That's Jesus. This, this uh, summer discovered that, uh, many of you know that I discovered that one of my daughters had a life-threatening brain tumor. And people were so kind and so solicitous and so nice and so prayerful. But I remember the reaction of one woman in our church. When I first saw her, when this news became public, she could hardly look at me. And when she looked at me, I could just see the deep um, concern. And I remembered her husband had the same tumor. Her husband died. Her husband suffered for years. And I remember her looking at me and I remember thinking, she knows. She knows too much. She knows this enemy. I've got a friend uh, known in my whole life. We were roommates in college. We went to graduate school together. Anything in my life ever goes wrong, he's on the phone and says, I'll be there. I'm coming. We went for my daughter's surgery in Houston. He's like, I'm coming. I'm coming. I have to beg him not to show up at every, you know, if, if I get a hangnail, I'm coming, you know. There's a beauty to it. Um, he can't hold himself at a distance when his friends are hurting. That's Jesus. If you belong to Jesus, you have a friend who can't bear to keep distant from you. And what does that solidarity give you? Security. That's why the Bible says, approach the throne of grace with what? Confidence. Confidence. Because he knows. You with me? This is the heart of God for you. The heart of God for you. It's a sympathetic heart. He's been there. There is no sin that he hasn't experienced. Second, the heart of Jesus for us is not just sympathetic, filling us with confidence and security. Secondly, is his, he's gentle. It says in, in verse 2 of Hebrews 5, he can deal gently with us, with the ignorant and the wayward. That's us. Priests. Priests in Israel were hard. They were legalistic. They were judgmental. They were caustic. They were harsh, right? So a priest are. They had the law. They were right. They carried the stick, you know. Remember that old picture of the, the nun in the Catholic school, you know, wrapping the knuckles of the students with the, with the ruler, you know. That was the priest in Israel. That was the image of a priest. They were hard, legalistic. You remember Jesus heals a, a man who has a withered hand. And, and to, have, to have that kind of physical malady in the ancient world, listen, they didn't have um, jobs that you could do with your brain back then. They didn't have um, uh, IT jobs. If you couldn't work with your hands, you couldn't work. It was a terrible. You couldn't support your family. There was no welfare. Jesus heals him. He heals him. 
But he made a terrible mistake. You remember what he did? Jesus healed him on the Sabbath day. And the priest said, this is worthy of death. You have violated the Sabbath. You have violated our holiest commandments. You're wicked. You're evil. That was their response. They completely missed what? There was a man with a withered hand whose life was changed. Mercy had gone out. Somebody's life. They should have run up and down the streets, jumping and shouting and celebrating, right? But they were hard. Hard. You know people like that. You know people, if you have to tell a secret about yourself, if you have to tell something that you've done that's, that, that was awful, you know there's people you're not going to tell that to, right? Because they're not safe. It's not safe to go to them with that news. You're weaponized them, right? They'll use it against you. They'll be harsh. They'll, 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 they'll scold you. They'll, they'll, they'll give you an answer. They won't be gentle. You know people like that. But Jesus has a gracious disposition. He's tender, he's gentle, he's calm, and he's kind. He's gentle with us. Listen to what I'm about to say. Jesus' heart is not sympathetic toward everyone. And Jesus is not gentle toward everyone. The Bible's very clear. If you come to him, you belong to him. If you don't, you don't. And if you don't belong to Jesus by your own willful refusal, you will not get gentle, you will get lion-like judgment. But amazingly, if you come to him, you will experience his shepherd-like tenderness. It'll be one or the other that you'll receive. Look at what it says in Isaiah beautifully. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, gently leading those who are with young. Beautiful. When we sin, when we fall, when we are stubborn, when we blow it, he doesn't handle us roughly. He doesn't throw up his hands in exasperation. He doesn't roll his eyes. He doesn't lash out. He doesn't scold us. That's what we do when people hurt us. He doesn't. He's gentle. As deep as you are sinful and broken, that's how deep his gentleness goes. Now, how many of us think gentleness is just all over the place in our culture at the moment? We have cancel culture. Hammer people, disown them, ruin them, they deserve it. Expose their sins. Expose something they did back in high school 30 years ago. Use it now to cause them to lose their job, ruin their reputation. If you've got that weapon, you hammer them with it. Social media is rife with scolding. Our culture is toxic, so harsh. So a couple months ago, we had the presidential election in our country. Um, the election was called for um, uh, President-elect Biden. That Sunday in church, uh, I prayed for um, our president-elect as I had President Trump before him, President Obama before him, et cetera. Um, when I walked out after church, there was a note waiting for me. Somebody had come to church for the first time uh, that day. They said, I have been so excited and anticipating coming to Seven Rivers Church, just moved to this community. Um, uh, but uh, then you prayed for 
um, uh, the new, uh, you know, the president-elect, and he said, uh, I'll never be back. Uh, I don't go to church where they pray for baby killers. He's referring, of course, to Biden's pro-abortion stance. Um, Fascinating, though, isn't it? I don't go to a church where they pray for baby killers. What does the Bible tell us to do? Pray for our government officials. Pray for those in authority over us. It even says if someone's your enemy, and I'm not saying Joe Biden is, but even if you regard them as such, it says what? Pray for your... I mean, the very thing the Bible tells us to do, but I'm not going... It was so harsh. It is amazing. You get emails and letters when you're a pastor... And you just want to sit down with the person over a cup of coffee and say, I want you to read this out loud to me when I'm sitting across from you. I just can't believe that you would actually ever say these words to another human being. But you'll put them on paper and you'll send them in an email or you'll put them in a tweet or you'll put them online. Incredible. Everybody's outraged. Feels so good, I guess. But you know, how effective is scolding? How effective is it? Uh, I don't think it's very effective with children. I don't think it's very effective. I know it's not that effective with spouses. I don't think it's very effective with employees, athletes. That's the old way of coaching, you know. Vince Lombardi. Motivate by fear and shame. How effective is scolding? I love John Perkins. I met John Perkins when I was in college in Mississippi. John Perkins started a ministry there. John Perkins' brother was murdered. John Perkins is black. He was murdered. His brother was murdered by the highway patrol in Mississippi. John Perkins was arrested. Uh, They took a fork and stuck it up his nose. He was tortured. He was beaten virtually into a coma. John Perkins is the sweetest uh, ministry of reconciliation and kindness. I've told you this story before. I'll I'll probably tell you 10 more times because I just like it. He had somebody who was like an intern for him, working for him, and said, you know, Pastor Perkins, I I don't know what to do about my grandmother. She's racist. She uses the N-word. It's hard to even be around her, and I'm, I'm embarrassed. I work here at this ministry, but um, this was a white guy saying this, and and um, John Perkins just listened, and, and he said, uh, would, would you do something for me? And the guy said, sure. He said, here, here's a, here's a bag of blueberries. I just picked them this morning. Would you give these to your grandma from me? <laughs> that is so beautiful. Somebody hates you. Give them blueberries. Give them a bag of, bag of blueberries. Jesus is gentle. His people should be gentle. But it takes security to be that way. If we don't have security, then we do all kinds of things to make us feel better. So I'm like 18 years old, and, and, I, and I'm on a missions trip with my church to, uh, to Appalachia, to West Virginia. And on the way there, I'm like a junior leader of the youth group. And uh, on the way there, we stop in a hotel, uh, all, our, all our youth group, and I managed to throw firecrackers in the hallway of the hotel in the middle of the night. And I even lit them before I did that. And, um, 
And so the youth director ferrets out who the guilty party was, and it's his trusted assistant, you know, who actually did this. Of course, it was egregious, it was dangerous, it was disturbed all the guests, it, was, um, it ruined our reputation with the hotel that was so gracious to have uh, all these kids stay there. Um, and, and he was deeply disappointed, the youth director, but you know what, he forgave me. Uh, it, it was worth sending me home, but he forgave me. So we get there, we're, we're, in, the, we're in the missions trip, uh, and, uh, and, and there's churches from around the country, and there's other um, uh, um, pastors there, and uh, some kid breaks the rules of this missions um, place, actually sneaks out at night and goes and participates in some behavior. And so, the, so they have a meeting of all the leaders, and I'm invited to sit in there to decide what to do because this is a, a send, send them home breach of behavior. And uh, they went around the room discussing what to do. What was the appropriate um, penalty to be assigned for that? And I remember when it came around to me, I said, send their butt home. Um, they crossed the line. They were warned. They did it. It's got to be an example for everyone else. Send their butt home. And I'll never forget the look of the, my youth director across the table from me, looking at me like, what do you have, the, what do you have the mind of an ant, you know? And he says, your memory? You don't recall just a couple days ago that that was you? You didn't get your butt sent home. And you, I, mean, I just remember him looking at me with his head tilted like, Gosh, you are hopeless, absolutely hopeless. Last then, where does our security come from? He's sympathetic, he's gentle. It comes because he's persevering. It's from John chapter six, verse 37 through 39. I didn't read this before. All that the Father gives me, Jesus says, will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast them out. I mean, just tattoo that on, on your arm, you know? Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, the old King James says, I will in no wise cast out. I will never, never cast them out. The, the actual language is a double negative. I will not, not cast them out is what it says literally. And this is the will of him who sent me that I'll lose nothing of everything that he's given to me. We speak of the perseverance of the saints. That's a doctrine we talk about if you know something about doctrine. That means that once saved, always saved. Once you belong to God, you'll always belong to God. The perseverance of the saints, but it's the perseverance of the Savior that's at the heart of our security. There is no reason that Jesus will ever close his heart to those who have come to him. No such reason exists. You cannot lose the favor of God because you never earned it. He doesn't change his mind. He gave it to you. He will not take it away. Do you know what? Every human has a limit of what they'll put up with from you. Every human has a limit. Every friend, every spouse, every child has a limit. If we offend them enough, if we fail them enough, if we betray them enough, they will walk away from us, but Jesus will not. His perseverance is without condition. You say, but, 
but I have really messed up. I have really, really messed up. And you know what he says? I will never cast you out. But there's a perversity in me. I've done evil things. I will never cast you out. But I've committed a crime. I will never cast you out. But I've done... I have really hurt people, really. I've ruined other people's lives. I will never cast you out, never cast you out. I will never cast you out. Rahab was a prostitute, Jacob was a liar, David was an adulterer, Peter was a denier, I will never cast you out to any one of them, right? I will never cast you out. Martin Luther was an anti-Semite. Jonathan Edwards owned slaves. John Calvin killed a man for his wrong theology. Martin Luther King was a serial philanderer. I will never cast you out. I will never cast you out. I will never cast you out. That's our security. You cannot get away from him ever, even if you try. What if I deny the faith? I will never cast you out. You see, you cannot get away from him even if you try because every one of us tries. That's how messed up we are. But he won't allow it. Sends his Holy Spirit, draws us home again. Do you ever wonder why, when Jesus was being humiliated on the cross, when he was spread eagled naked in the, in the cheap primary intersection of the community, where anyone, man, woman, or child, could see him? as they battered and beat him as a common, heinous criminal, that Jesus didn't stop and say, that's it, that's it. I am not taking this from you. I, I made you. I made the whole world. You mock me with this sign, King of the Jews? I'm King of the Jews, I'm King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I've existed from all eternity. You're nothing. And I'm going to back up because I'm calling the angels now. And man, you're going to see what you... Why didn't he do that? Because to do that would have required him to abandon you. Because he was there in your place. And because he was there in your place, he had no defense. He deserved what he was getting. And to abandon that role was to abandon you, and that's the one thing he will never do. Something radical happens when you start to believe that. You become secure. He will hold me fast. I love the words. 
When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost, his promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Jesus, there's no one like you. There's no friend who has sympathy, solidarity, who would come and walk on this earth in our shoes like you have, who deals with us gently when we deserve impatience and harshness and who would never abandon us. Never, ever, ever. Lord, may this reality make us new. Secure children, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.